Happy Lord's Day. Hear from the word of the Lord, Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At your works, at the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Believers, it is always good to give thanks. No matter what circumstances you find yourself in, a right response is to consider God, to consider his faithfulness, his steadfast love, and to give thanks. So let us join our voices in your homes, sing, wake the neighbors, fill your homes with song and praise. It is good to give you thanks, O Lord, and praise your name most high. To shout your steadfast love at dawn, your faithfulness by night. Sing that again. It is good to give you thanks, O Lord, and praise your name most high. To shout your steadfast love at dawn, your faithfulness by night. Joyful melody we raise on instruments of string. All the wondrous works you've made made us gladly sing. Great, great and mighty are your words. Who can comprehend? What tongue could tell your endless worth? What fool could understand? It is good to give you thanks, O Lord, and praise your name most high. To shout your steadfast love at dawn, your faithfulness by night. Evildoers may flourish, with you they can't contend. And though we sprout like the grass, the wicked meets his end. Thank 
strength, so Lord, praise your name most high. Shout your steadfast love at dawn, your faithfulness by night. Please just to give you thanks, O Lord, praise your name most high. Shout your steadfast love at dawn, your faithfulness by night. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord, indeed, it is good, it is right, it is fitting, it is beautiful to give you the praise that is your due. You are great and greatly to be praised. And you have proven your great grace to us in your Son, who died for our sins and was raised for our justification. So we celebrate this morning his resurrection and all that it entails Adoption as sons and daughters, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with you. Lord, your priesthood, your intercession. Lord Jesus, you reigning on high now that you are resurrected and ascended and seated at the right hand of your Father. And so, Lord, because you are that Savior, uh, we enter into your presence afresh we ask for your help, Lord. You are great and greatly to be praised. And who are we to offer praise to you? We confess it is not as great as we would wish. It's not as great as you deserve. But you are great and greatly to be praised. And we pray for your help. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome to this online streaming service of Desert Springs Church. Uh, if you're tuning into this at uh, 10 a.m. on Sunday morning, well, you can know that what you're seeing on your screen is actually happening here live. And we long for a greater shared experience than that. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that in just a minute. Um, but for now, we celebrate that small step that many of us are worshiping together, even though apart. We're separate but at least we are simultaneous, and we haven't been for the last uh, more than a dozen weeks. But whenever this is that you're tuning in, and whoever you are, and no matter your background or present spiritual condition, we just want to say welcome to one and all. Uh, we want to say that we're here for you. And we don't say that in any sort of trite or simple manner. Uh, we want to be here for you, whatever that might mean for you. Uh, especially if you don't have a church home. So we can begin to dialogue about that uh, by using our email address, info at dscabq.com. Let us know what we can pray for. Let us know that uh, maybe you're new and tuning into this for the very first time and you're looking for a church home or just looking for something of substance in this world that seems so fragile and fleeting in these days. Let us know how we can serve you. And for those of us who would call Desert Springs their church home, well, hopefully you've been keeping up on our communication to you, especially Pastor Ron's weekly email, which he's called The Doc. Uh, by the way, you can find all those old emails uh, on our website. Uh, there's a red banner at the top. You click on that, and that'll have all of our recent sermons and emails, communication of various kinds, and podcasts as well. Uh, or even better, you can go to the bottom of our website and you'll see a little button for subscribe. And that'll hook you up with uh, various emails that we use to communicate. 
Uh, If you read it, you saw Ron's doc this past week had a couple of especially big and important announcements, and so let me reiterate them here. Uh, One being our members meeting, that'll be July 29th uh, at 6.30 p.m., and this will be in person. Uh, No need to RSVP, Uh, just come if you are a member. Uh, We won't have child care, and we'll be following all of the relevant COVID guidelines that will, whatever that relevant guidelines will be at that time. Uh, But uh, we'd encourage you to come if you're able to, if you're physically up for it and comfortable with it. Uh, At our members meeting, we'll install two new elders, and we will welcome into membership some new folks as well and say goodbye to some of our longtime members as well. And the second thing I wanted to mention from Ron's uh, doc this last week was that DSC will, Lord willing, uh, begin to reopen for public worship services starting August 2nd, Sunday, August 2nd. Uh, You'll hear more of the specifics soon, but let me just give you a a quick thumbnail sketch because I'm sure many are wondering. What we'll do is we'll divide our membership into fourths, uh, and then we'll provide two services on Sunday mornings. Uh, And so that will mean that members will be able to attend in person basically every other week. And we'll give you the breakdown later. No need to worry about that just yet. Uh, But that should allow us enough space to not only meet in this room safely spread out, but also allow us enough space uh, to be able to welcome any visitors that would want to come on any week. Again, more specifics later. And uh, keep in mind that those specifics might even get adjusted before we get to August 2nd uh, in these crazy, quickly changing days. Do be in prayer for our elders uh, as they shepherd the flock of God that has been entrusted to them by the chief shepherd Jesus who gave his blood for those sheep. It is no small thing to, to be entrusted with the leadership of a church like this. Well, let me read from Psalm 133, and then we'll rehearse in song the truth from this old psalm about the beauty and sweetness of unity among God's people. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. May that be so. Good it is.
pray with me once again? Oh Lord, we confess that there are too many times, too many occasions, too many things for which we do not give thanks to you. Sometimes we feel thankful and we don't express it. Sometimes we're not thankful. And we acknowledge again that that is, that is a, a mark of those who don't believe you, don't trust you, and are not worshipers of you. And that doesn't mean that every Christian isn't a Christian, but it does mean, Lord, that we want to be more thankful. Help us. Make us a thankful church. May it make us a people who shine brightly in this dark world of pessimism and complaint and bitterness and anger. May we not complain. May, Lord, you keep us from worry and anxiety, the kind that doesn't reflect your views, Lord, your sovereignty, your goodness and wisdom and nearness. Lord, we ask for your help to not be anxious for anything, but instead to just pray, to pray with thanksgiving. Lord, we ask for your help to cast our burdens on you, knowing you care for us. Lord, we pray for your peace that passes all understanding. Lord, we pray for a kind of spiritual comfort even in our trouble that's greater than our trouble and even has enough comfort to comfort those who are also in trouble. Lord, we thank you for your word which tells us what to pray for. Lord Jesus, you taught us to pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth like it is in heaven. We pray your kingdom would come. We pray, Lord, you'd keep providing for us. Give us what we need and help us to trust you for what we need. Lord, we pray you'd keep us from temptation. We pray you'd keep us from sin. We pray you'd deliver us from all forms of evil. We pray this because you have delivered us from the guilt of our own evil. We pray you'd continue to eradicate that evil in our hearts day by day by your grace. We pray, Lord, for your glory. Lord, keep us from putting too much hope in overly specific prayers as if we always know what you need to do. We pray you'd do your thing. We pray you'd be our God. We pray what Paul taught us in 1 Timothy 2, that prayers need to be made for those in authority, on various levels of authority. We pray for all of them for those on the national level and state level and city level and even police officers. We pray, Lord, for your, well, your kindness to your church. Paul told us in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for them that we might live a peaceable and quiet life. We pray, Lord, for the protection of liberty. We thank you for Supreme Court decisions even in this last week that have protected religious liberty. We pray, Lord, for the salvation of all. That's what Paul said in 1 Timothy 2. Pray for those in authority because you desire all to be saved. All kinds of people, from top to bottom, poor to rich, 
no matter their color or race. In fact, Lord, you are saving a multitude from every tongue, nation, people, and culture. And one day, as John saw in Revelation, one day there will be a multitude which no man can number, singing your praises. Worthy are you, the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and glory and honor and blessing. Lord, we thank you that that's coming. And we pray we would see more of it today, tomorrow, the next day, and on into eternity. We trust you for it. In your name, amen. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. Be the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In a longing, in a darkness, now the light of a life has come. Look to Christ to condescended took on flesh to ransom us come behold the wondrous mystery he the perfect son of man in his living in his son trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the help and man. Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the Christ the Lord upon the tree In the stead of ruined sinners Hangs the Lamb in victory See the price of our redemption See the Father's plan
Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he Gosh, I was humming so hard just then. Uh, it's good to be back. It's good to be back together on a Sunday morning. If you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians. We're going to start a new series in 2 Thessalonians. It's in the back of your Bible in the New Testament, almost near the end. If you get to the Timothys, you've gone too far. Uh, 2 Thessalonians. What I'll do, we're, we're just going to read the first Five verses this morning. So I'll read those and we'll study them together. So this is Second Thessalonians chapter 1, first five verses. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought Always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. You pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, Lord. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So if you've been with our church for any amount of time, you remember that we went through the book of 1 Thessalonians earlier this year. So we started in January, we wrapped that up about 12 weeks ago, and quite a bit has happened since we started studying 1 Thessalonians, right? It's kind of crazy to think about how much has happened since we started studying 1 Thessalonians. But, But when we finished that book, we moved to a series in the Psalms that we just wrapped up, Psalms 92 100. But the plan was all along to come back to Second Thessalonians after we finished that series in the Psalms, just so we could study these two letters in proximity to each other because they're uh, very much related. And I say letters because that's what these books are, as are many of the books in the New Testament. They're, they're letters, or, or as uh, we often refer to them as epistles, which is just from the Greek word for letter. And as letters usually do, this letter begins with a greeting. So before we get into the body of the letter, into the meat of this letter, what I kind of want to do as a way of reviewing what we learned when we studied 1 Thessalonians, I want to uh, study this greeting in context. So that's our first point for these first two verses, greetings in context. Several years ago, uh, I was teaching at a youth retreat in Texas, at a, at a fine church in Texas, uh, but it was youth, so there were high school and middle school students there, and I was teaching out of the book of the Romans, and, and I thought I would just take a minute, because there were such young students there, to explain that this book was called Romans, because it was a letter written to a group of Christians in the city of Rome, Italy. 
So it was the letter to the Romans. And, and I'll never forget, as soon as I explained that, there was an adult leader sitting right in the row, right in front of me. And I explained that, and she goes, oh! Like she had missed that bit of context. That, that, that's why that book was called Romans. And, and, and so I just, I swore from that moment on, I never wanted to assume that somebody knew why the books of the Bible had funny names. Because I'm sure that's what she thought. Well, this is the Bible. They all have funny names. What do you do? But those funny names mean something, right? They, they tell you something about who wrote it or who it was written to or what's in it. And, and such as it is with, with this book. I think Second Thessalonians might be one of the weirdest names in the Bible. Okay, when I'm, when I'm writing out these sermons and I have to write Thessalonians, I misspell it every time, okay? Because it's a weird word, but it means something. This is a letter. Just like Romans, just like Corinthians, just like Galatians. And we see in verse 1 who sent the letter. It's from the apostle Paul. Very first word. Because in the ancient world, they did it way better than we do. They, they wrote who sent the letter at the very beginning. I don't know why. We, say, we save it till the end, right? It's like from Paul. Have you ever had that where you're having to like flip through an email to go all the way to the bottom to see who wrote the email? And then you can go back up and, and see what they have to say. But they did it right. They just say it right at the beginning. This is from the apostle Paul who's the primary author, but he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we believe that not only is this Paul's word in a given context, but this is God's word in every context for us today. So Paul wrote it, and he sends his greeting with two other men, Silvanus and Timothy. And these three guys had become convinced of the gospel. All of the stuff that we've been singing about and praying about and talking about so far this morning, they had become convinced of salvation in Jesus Christ, and they were convinced that that was a message that needed to go to the whole world. And so they were sent out as missionaries to go to places where the gospel had never been preached and to proclaim it. And so as they went, they came to this city called Thessalonica. And someone from Thessalonica is called a Thessalonian. Okay, you got it? So now you don't have any excuse to know why this book has a funny name. And Thessalonica is actually still a city today. I didn't uh, really appreciate this. It's a city in northern Greece called Thessaloniki. They call it that now. And it's actually the second largest city in Greece today. It's a big city. It was the 2014 youth capital of Europe. Whatever that means. Okay, but it's supposed to be a cool city. It's supposed to be really big. And, And back in the time when Paul and his companions got to Thessalonica, it was a big city. It was the capital of the northern section of Greece called Macedonia. It was the capital of that Roman province, and it was on a port. So there was a lot of business happening there. It was on these crisscrossing major highways in the Roman Empire. And so it was very busy. It was very bustling. It was diverse. And so in the ancient world, that meant that it was very polytheistic. There was a lot of different gods being worshipped in this really big city. They had Greek gods and Roman gods and weird Egyptian gods. And there was even a synagogue to the Jews in this in this city. But in Thessalonica, one of the most important centers of worship was uh, a temple to the worship of the emperor, of Caesar. So they would worship the living Caesar like he was a god on earth. And they were really happy to do that because they had made this kind of bargain with Caesar. These were not Romans, these were Greeks, but they had made this bargain with Rome where they would give Rome uh, ferocious loyalty. They would even worship the Caesar and the Caesar would make them rich and prosperous and give them peace 
and security. Remember, this was the Pax Romana. So, so it worked out very well for the Thessalonians to add the worship of Caesar into their milieu of just worshiping all of these weird gods. And so you can imagine what this city is like. It's a big city and it's just swirling with all these different weird religious ideas and political ideas. And, and there was a lot of materialism and there was a lot of immorality. And every one of those people was dead in their trespasses and sins apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul and his two friends, they come to Thessalonica. And if you want to learn more about what happens, you can go to the book of Acts, chapter 17. We looked at this when we studied 1 Thessalonians. But, but in short, Paul comes to this city and he preaches the gospel, the good news that, that there is one true God and he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus Christ has been the salvation for everyone that would believe in them. And an amazing thing happens when Paul preaches this gospel to Thessalonica. A lot of people believe it. In 1 Thessalonians, if you remember this, Paul recounts the story this way. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So in verse 9, he says, You turned to God from idols, all those idols, to serve the living and the true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And that will forever be one of my favorite, most succinct descriptions of what true faith and true repentance looks like. They turned from idols to worship the true and living God, and, and they were saved from wrath. And it was amazing. It was amazing that this happened. It was, a, it was a miracle that this happened, but not everybody in that city was happy about it. Do you remember this when we studied 1 Thessalonians? There were, there were a lot of people there that saw that gospel as a threat to what they valued. Okay, because to say that, that these other idols were not gods, that not even Caesar was a god, and that the true king was Jesus, well, that was a threat. That threatened what was important to them. That threatened what they had their allegiances aligned with. And, and so they knew that if they just let these Christians keep on proclaiming that gospel, that it could bring trouble, especially if Caesar found out. And so what happened in that city is, is they worked up this mob, this violent mob that, that attacked the church and they grabbed the leaders and the city government uh, made these, these official injunctions against them that said, you cannot preach this. They fined them, they took money from them, and they, and they kicked Paul out. And his companions. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul described that experience as being torn away. There's a word that means bereaved of someone that you love. Like you lost a child. Paul and his companions have to go to other cities. And this whole time, Paul is, is worried about these ones that, that he loves. Because he knows that that persecution hasn't stopped. That they're still going to be afflicted. That these baby Christians are going to continue to be harassed by these people that do not like the gospel that they believe and that they preach. And so Paul's wondering, I mean, do they even believe anymore? Do they still believe when believing means that you can lose everything? Are they going to give in to this pressure of their neighbors? Or are they going to abandon the gospel? And so it says in 1 Thessalonians that Paul couldn't stand it any longer. Love that phrase. He couldn't stand it any longer. And so he sent Timothy back. To check on them. To see, are they, st are they still there? Is there anyone there that still believes in the gospel in Thessalonica? And if there are, can you encourage them? Can you build them up in their faith? And then come back quick and tell me. Give me a report. So Paul sends Timothy. And then he waits. 
And then, and then Timothy returns. And he's got good news. They're still being persecuted. They had a lot of questions. There are some issues in this church. But there is a church in Thessalonica. God be the glory. And so Paul is just overjoyed. He grabs his pen and he writes a letter. And I just can't imagine how much joy and gratitude he felt to address that letter to the church of the Thessalonians. In God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he writes this letter, sends it to him. That's First Thessalonians, the first letter to the Thessalonians that we studied a few months ago. And now we don't know what happens. There's some gaps in our timeline here. Presumably a few months pass from the time that Paul sent that first letter. And he has some contact with that church, whether it's through more letters that we don't have a record of. Or Timothy just keeps on going for Timothy. He's just going back and forth all the time, checking on this church. We don't know, but Paul is aware of what's going on in this church. And at some point after he sent the first letter, he gets a report that they are still being persecuted that they are still having some issues, that they still have some questions, but that they are still standing firm. And so Paul, again, when he gets this report, he picks up his pen and he addresses it the exact same way in our text today, to the church of the Thessalonians. And then he greets them with his customary greeting in verse 2, grace and peace to you. And so I can only imagine when Paul is writing this second letter that he feels just as much joy as he did the first time. And I I think we can see that because just like 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians begins after he has greeted them in the Lord with thanksgiving. So that's our second point in verses 3 to 4. We have thanksgiving for growth. Thanksgiving for growth. Verse 3, Paul writes, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, and sisters, as is right. I think ought, ought is a really important word there. It's carrying a lot of weight. It, it means it's not just we give thanks, it's we must give thanks. We are bound to give thanks. You see that? He says it's right that we give you, that we give God thanks for you. F.F. F. Bruce, in his commentary on this passage, he, he suggests that maybe someone objected to the, the level of thanksgiving that Paul was pouring out in the first letter. He was just so overflowing with joy and gratitude, and maybe somebody in Thessalonica was like, Paul, Paul, come on, that's, that's too much, man, that's too much. And Paul says, no, you don't, you don't understand. We ought to give thanks, always for you. It is, it is right, brothers and sisters. Why? Still in verse 3, he says, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So their faith and their love are growing. And he he doesn't use the word explicitly here. He does use the word steadfast in verse 4, but I think the context helps us think hope is included. So they're growing in faith, they're growing in love, and they're growing in hope. These three things that he commended them for in 1 Thessalonians that he brings up again and again. This is Paul's famous trifecta of Christian virtue, faith, hope, and love. And they are growing in it. And so Paul says, I must give thanks to God because that growth is from God. It's not like they're just 
growing in faith and hope and love in and of themselves, like that's just the natural course of your life. No, he knows that they're working out their own salvation with fear and trembling, but that they're growing means that God is at work in them. And so he says, we have to stop. We have to return thanks. Don't pass this by. Give thanks to God. You're growing. And I think Paul especially feels burdened to thank God for this because this is actually an answered prayer. Do you remember this? In 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul prays this. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Paul prayed that for this church and then he gets this report that that prayer has been answered and he does what we should all do. He, he gives thanks. It is right. And I think there's so much that we can learn from this, just these, these little verses, right? I think there's a lot that we can learn about prayer. As Ryan was saying before, sometimes we're at a loss for what to pray. Why don't you pray for someone to grow in faith, hope, and love? You can remember that, right? Can you remember that? Faith, hope, and love? Pray that. Pray that for the members of your family. Just go through their names and say, God, I pray that they would grow in faith and hope and love. Pray that for the members in your community group. Just go through one by one and just pray that. Quick, it doesn't have to be long. Pray that for your elders in this church. They would grow in faith, hope, and love because what do we know from this text? God answers that prayer, right? And when he does, we give thanks. Because we don't just learn about prayer, we learn about, learn about thanksgiving. And this, this was really helpful for me as I was studying this. Paul's saying that it is right that we give thanks when we see God's activity in our lives or in the lives of other people. When we see God working, it's right that we give thanks. But what does that assume? That we're actually recognizing God's activity when it happens. That we're looking for it. Elise Fitzpatrick, who's written a number of books about biblical counseling, uh, she has written, and this was so, so wise and so helpful, she has written that, that we as Christians should be grace detectives. Grace detectives, like Sherlock Holmes, right? That we should, we should have a big magnifying glass, and we should just be looking at other people's lives for any clue, any evidence that God has been at work. And I say that that's wise and helpful because, because so often we are better at being the opposite, at being sin detectives, at being fault detectives. I think this is especially true in our, in our current cultural climate, isn't it? We will just scrutinize every little thing that, that somebody says or somebody does, and we will take stuff in the worst possible light. We will even make all sorts of assumptions about their motives and what's going on in their hearts, and we'll just look for anything that we can jump on, pounce on, to cancel them. And I'm not saying that, that sometimes there aren't things that, that are legitimately wrong that need to be addressed. But, but the way that our climate, our culture feels right now, it's like we're just, we're just watching and waiting for somebody to screw up so that we can get all over them. And it's almost like we're glad when they fail because that makes us feel even more right and even more virtuous. Like we can just be so clear and they're the bad ones and I'm... 
the good ones. And I know somebody here right now is listening to this and they're saying, that's right, they do do that. And that just made my point. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. We're so tempted to do this. We're so tempted to to fault finding. And it's all the more because this is swirling all around us. But is that what Paul does? Is that Paul's spirit here? There's lots of stuff wrong with this church. Remember I said that. They've got issues. There are people that are teaching falsely about the return of Christ. There are people that aren't working and being lazy. Paul knows that there's a lot of faults. But what's the first thing he does? He gives thanks. He encourages. He affirms. And I think that's an example for us to imitate. And, and it's one thing, you know, social media. I think where we need to be especially mindful of this is in our own homes. Because it's with the people that are really close to us, right? It's the people that we live with. It's with our spouses and our children or our parents. Or it's the people that, that are our, our roommates or our coworkers or, or whatever it is. It's the people that we're really close with that it's really hard to see anything but what's wrong with them. It's like when you realize that somebody's a noisy eater. And then that's all you can think about ever. You know, it's just like, gosh, how do they do that? The people that we live with, it's just so easy to be so aware of their faults. And this is why, again, I think it's so wise to be a grace detective. Sometimes the clues are hard to find, but they're there. And so we should be looking closely at people's lives to find anything, any evidence that they're growing, that there's grace manifested in their life. Okay, were, were they patient in a situation where you know in the past they would have lost their temper? Were they, were they honest with you? When you know they really wanted to be evasive or defensive? Did they see a need and meet that need without being asked? That's all grace. That's all growth. And we should see that and be glad about it. There can be lots of other things going wrong, okay? There can be lots of other stuff that you can point your finger at. But did you see that little thing? Praise God for it. Give thanks for it vocally say out loud that's what Paul is doing he's, he's thanking God but but it's to the Thessalonians he's like I thank God for you for this work that he's doing in your life he even goes as far in verse 4 to say that he's boasting to other churches about it and this isn't bad boasting this is God glorifying boasting it's meant to build up God it's affirmation and encouragement that is public And it's spread all over. And I just wonder, man, what if we were a community that was more like that? It was just so quick to to speak words that build up, to give thanks and praise. When somebody's not around, we're not gossiping about them. We're not complaining about them. We're praising them to other people. Imagine what that would do for our own hearts. Wouldn't that unify us so much more as as a family and as a church? And wouldn't that make us more selfless? we were actively looking at what's good in other people you know because if if somebody's annoying you if their faults are bothering you it's not really their problem it's your problem right but if we can do that work of trying to see God's grace in them it just takes the focus off of us altogether and onto God and you imagine what what kind of community that would make us how attractive we would be as as a family if this is what we were doing we were just building each other up and praising each other all the time to the glory of God in a world that is 
backbiting and devouring each other, what kind of a light we would be in this world? Can you imagine how much God would get the glory if we were more like this? God, grow us in this. Because that's where Paul's coming from. He's, he's heard a, a, this report of growth in his friends, and he knows that it is only from God, and so he gives thanks and praise. But Paul is not just praising God for their growth. He also praises God for the circumstances surrounding their growth. Again in verse 4, he says, We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So what makes Paul the most thankful, what has impressed him the most about God's grace in the lives of this church is not only that they are growing in faith and hope and love, but that that growth is taking place in the midst of suffering. And even through their suffering, they are enduring, they are bearing up underneath that. And so Paul says this is the greatest clue that God is at work in your life, that you are being persecuted and you are enduring. That's what he says in verse 5. On the last point, we see suffering as evidence. Verse 5, he says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Now, this is, this is actually kind of a complicated verse, okay? You have to decide what the this is referring to, okay? Is it referring to persecution? Is it referring to their endurance in persecution? I think it's just both. And then the, the larger logic of this section is, is complicated as well. Verses 3 to 10 are actually one sentence in Greek. So it kind of moves from thanksgiving into the big idea of this sentence, which is, which is about, about God's judgment. Of non-believers. Paul says in verse 8 of this chapter. God will inflict vengeance. On those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel. Of our Lord Jesus. We're going to look at this next week. This is, this is heavy stuff. Next week it's, it's God's punishment. It's God's judgment. But in this verse. Verse 5. Paul brings up this idea of judgment. He starts introducing it, and it's surprising because it's not in the context of the judgment of unbelievers, which we'll see next week, but in verse 5, it's the judgment of believers. And that might sound kind of weird to our ears because that's not usually how we use the word judgment, but judgment is, is actually a neutral word. It just means pronouncing a verdict, and that verdict can be bad, as in the case of the wrath that's going to be poured out on unbelievers, but it can also be good. God judging someone worthy of eternal life based on their faith in Jesus Christ, his son. So there are these two kinds of judgments. But the point is that those judgments, either way, good or bad, they're righteous. That's the word he uses. It's God's righteous judgment. However God judges a person, it's perfectly just. God has not made a mistake. And he hasn't made a mistake in the case of the Thessalonians. I think that's, that's the point that Paul's trying to make here. Because if you read all of chapter 1, you get the sense that Paul's main objective here is he's trying to comfort this church that's being persecuted. 
He's trying to build them up and encourage them to stand firm. So he's trying to comfort them. And here he's comforting them by helping them think rightly about their suffering as it pertains to the righteous judgment of God. It's not that they are being judged unworthy that they're suffering. It's because they've been judged worthy. And that's important because when, you, when we're suffering, I think that's when we're tempted most to, to wonder if we've done something wrong. When bad things are happening to us, when, when things start falling apart, that's when we start wondering, have, have I sinned against God? Is this God's wrath against me somehow? And Paul, Paul is saying, no. That, that's not it. That's not why you're suffering. That punishment, that, that negative judgment has already happened in Jesus Christ. That's God's righteous judgment. You have already been judged by God and declared to be worthy of the kingdom of God, not in yourselves, but because God in his grace has pronounced a good judgment on you because Jesus Christ, the righteous took your unrighteousness off of you and onto himself and imputed his righteousness to you and he suffered the wrath that you deserved. Suffered the wrath that the Thessalonians deserved because remember they were worshiping idols. They They were unbelievers and they justly deserved present and eternal punishment and God poured out that punishment on Christ. And so Paul is saying, you might be tempted to think that this is God's punishment, but remember the gospel. The punishment has been paid. And so you have to find another understanding of what your suffering is because it's not wrath. And so I stop here and I ask, have you believed that gospel? Have you believed that you are unrighteous because you've been worshiping idols? then that negative judgment is yours. You do deserve wrath. But the hope is that Jesus has suffered that punishment. And so if you would do exactly what the Thessalonians did, if you will will turn from your idols and your allegiances and your immorality and your materialism, if you will turn to Jesus Christ as the one true and living God who suffered the punishment for your sin, then, then you will receive what the Thessalonians have received, which is the kingdom. Eternal life that begins now and lasts forever. And then you can receive this hope and this comfort that Paul is trying to comfort this church with in the midst of their suffering. Paul says, yes, Thessalonians, you are being persecuted. Yes, you are being afflicted. But lest you think that God is doing something wrong or you have done something wrong, let me help you think about what this suffering is that you're going through. It's not punishment It's evidence. This this is crazy. It's not punishment. It is proof that you've been counted worthy of the kingdom of God. The word he uses for evidence here is actually a word that means like a token, like a visible visible proof. So this is what I thought of. of. Some of you guys know that I recently finished my studies at Southern Seminary. And when I graduated, they did, they did something kind of cool. So they sent me this, this lapel pin that has like a picture of the school on it. And, and they sent a little letter with it. And they said, you are now a proud graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. 
And when you go to like conventions or you go to conferences or whatever it is, wear this, wear this pin. And so everybody will, will see that and they will know that you graduated from Southern Seminary. And that other seminary graduates, other Southern graduates will see that and know that you guys are in the same community together. So wear this pin wherever you go. And I thought that, you know, I thought that was pretty cool. So I wore it in today and then Pastor Ryan, our preaching pastor, says, oh, that's cool. I got one from Oxford. He's such a one-upper, Pastor Ryan. <laughs> but no, and I, and I promise I'm not going to wear this every week. I this is not really my style. Okay, this is an illustration of an evidence. This is a token. This is what this word means. So in the same way that somebody can look at this and know, oh yeah, he went to Southern. Paul is saying there is an evidence of your being in the kingdom. And you know what it is? Your persecution. Your suffering. And not only that, you're enduring in that suffering. That's the sign. That's what somebody would look at and say, yeah, they're in the kingdom. They belong to this much more important community. And this is the opposite of how we think, isn't it? We think that if things are getting hard, something's wrong. But Paul's saying, no, this is exactly right. There are even some in the church today who would ascribe to what's called prosperity or word of faith theology. And if you ask them, what is the evidence of your faith in Jesus Christ? What is the evidence of you being blessed by God? They would say, oh, it's your prosperity. It's things going well for you. It's more wealth. It's more health. And that's garbage. That's not what this says. No, you're being persecuted and you're enduring. That is the evidence that you are worthy of the kingdom of God. Not a Mercedes-Benz. And this is, I mean, so profound, but this is exactly what Jesus said, isn't it? Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Rejoice because you know you have treasure in heaven. Rejoice because this is proof. Okay, this is the same thing that Paul was saying. When you are persecuted, when people exclude you or stop talking to you or try to cancel you because of your faith in Jesus, you rejoice because then you know for certain that you're really a Christian. So how? How is our persecution actually an evidence that we are in the kingdom of God? Well, to close, I want to give you three brief reasons. How is our persecution and our endurance in that an evidence that we actually are believers? First, that we are even persecuted in the first place evidences that we are actually living and proclaiming the true gospel. Okay, let me say that again. The fact that you're persecuted in the first place is an evidence that you are actually living out and proclaiming the true gospel. What I mean is this. What we believe is offensive. It's offensive to our age just like it was offensive in the age of the Thessalonians. 
we are going into a world that worships idols. Maybe they're not statues, but it's the same impulse. We are going out into a world that's materialistic and immoral with all kinds of allegiances that are not allegiances to God. And we are going out and we are proclaiming there is only one God and one way to God in Jesus Christ. And unless you repent and believe in that God and obey his commandments as Lord of your life, you will suffer eternal wrath from God. That is not popular. That is going to rub some people the wrong way as we go out and proclaim that message. And let me be clear, it's the message that's offensive, okay? The gospel does not need your help being more offensive, okay? We go out and proclaim the gospel with gentleness and respect, but the message that we proclaim, it's going to rub people the wrong way, and it's going to invite pushback. And so if you look at your life and there's not anything there's nobody pushing back. There's nobody that, that is uncomfortable because you're proclaiming something that challenges their values. If there's nobody that's ever upset with you because of what you believe, then an evidence is missing. That's what this is saying. And in fact, that might be an evidence of something else. Nobody ever has a problem with you because of your faith. Well, it could just be an evidence that you are very isolated. You have surrounded yourself with people that believe the exact same thing you do. So, of course, they're never going to get upset. And so, maybe you need to ask yourself, why? Why am I not around more people that don't believe this? And, and I want to do a little COVID caveat, okay? Because as I was reading this, I was getting convicted. And I was like, oh, yeah, I just really can't be around people right now, okay? So, so there is that, but... But pandemics notwithstanding, maybe pray and ask, why am I only around people that believe the same thing that I do? And maybe ask God for, for more opportunities, for a heart, for the lost. So, so maybe that's it. You're, you're a believer, but you're isolated. But it could also be, it could be a sign of something worse. Because maybe you are around non-believers in your job or at your gym or whatever it is. And, and they don't know what you believe. Because you never say it. Because you're actually ashamed of the gospel. So you're not getting any pushback for what you believe because no one knows what you believe. Or worse, you're around non-believers all of the time except your life and your words and your faith actually doesn't look any different than theirs does. So they're not getting upset by your faith because you have the same faith that they do. You're really one of them. Brother or sister, friend, you may not be a brother or a sister. You may not be a Christian because persecution, suffering for the kingdom is an evidence that you do believe and are professing that true gospel. So secondly, this is an evidence because when we are persecuted and endure it, it proves that we are really saved and that God actually is at work in our lives. When we are persecuted and endure through it, that is proof that we're actually saved and that God is at work in our lives. And you could broaden this. This applies to any kind of suffering, not just persecution. This is, this is how you endure through trials, through sickness, through losing your job, through whatever it is. If, if trials come and you don't abandon your faith, that's a really good sign that you're actually saved. That proves that you're not the seed that was sown on the rocky soil that Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower. Okay, those that have no root in themselves but endure for a while 
And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Because you can't really sit on the fence when you're being persecuted. Why, why would you continue to confess something that people will hate you for if you don't even believe what it is that they're hating you for? Okay? It might be comfortable in certain contexts to say, sure, I'm a Christian, but as soon as that gets pushed back and you're like, oh, that's not working anymore, you'll fall away. But if you're really a Christian and that comes, you double down. You turn more to the Lord in faith. You turn more to the Lord in hope because you know there's nowhere else that you can go. Everything else is an idol. And this is hard, but what else am I going to do? This is my fortress. And so you press in to God. And when that happens, you know, you know more, more certainly that that is your hope, that that is your faith, that that is your God. And that is a grace. Suffering in that way is a grace because it gives you confidence. It gives you assurance. And who doesn't want that? Do you ever doubt if you're saved? Do you ever doubt if you're a Christian? Well, these situations help prove that. I think that's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. He says, we rejoice in our trials because it proves the tested genuineness of our faith. So we're glad because it gives us more certainty. What Peter says is that gives you more certainty that you're actually in Christ and with Christ. Because Christ suffered. And he endured. And if Christ actually is in you, and you are in Christ, and you will be like Christ, you will suffer and you will endure. And when it happens, you say, hallelujah, I'm in Christ. This is, this is hard, but I'm in Christ. And I know that with more certainty. That's powerful evidence that we thank God for. So lastly, our suffering is actually proof that God loves us. Because God uses it to make us stronger. Third, our suffering is proof that God loves us. Because God uses it to make us stronger. The book of Hebrews says that God is a father who disciplines his children. Or as John 15 says, the father is the vine dresser that prunes us. He cuts us so that we will bear more fruits. This is fatherly love. So rather than seeing our affliction as an evidence or an indicator that God is not pleased with us, we should actually see it as the exact opposite. It's proof that God loves you. Because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. So, I, you know, if you're going through a trial right now, you're going through something difficult right now, and you're enduring it, Brother or sister, I want to encourage you that that means God loves you. That your father's not far away from you. He's actually really near to you. And he's working in this because God's discipline, it's never purposeless. That pain is always productive. And you don't know what it's working, but it is working. It's growing. And so, and so be encouraged as a sign that God loves you. I think this is why James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Which is the same thing that Paul has commended the Thessalonians for. It has produced, their trials have produced steadfastness. This is why Romans 5, Paul writes, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces 
endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's productive and its goal is hope. And Paul says, so we rejoice. We rejoice in our sufferings. We give thanks because God, even through our suffering, is teaching us about our greatest hope. That we are in the kingdom. That that punishment has been paid and so we are righteous. And so no matter what happens to us in this life, as bad as it is, we're in the kingdom forever. We will receive eternal life. And if suffering in this life helps me be more certain of the life to come, then we rejoice. Amen? Close with these words from Martin Luther in the song that we're about to sing. Let goods and kindred go. Let, let your possessions and let your family go. Let this mortal life also because the body they may kill God's truth abideth still his kingdom is forever let's pray God I pray that you would instruct us from your word here that you would help us to be more grateful more grateful for our brothers and sisters in all the ways that you're at work in their lives we're grateful for your work in our own life, Lord. Help us to not be, help us, help us not to not be our chief fault finders, but to see that even our most grievous sins that we are so much aware of, Lord, you, you paid that punishment. And you have given us hope, hope that we will live forever. And Lord, that hope does help us to endure. And God, even if we are suffering, we rejoice. Thank you. Not that it's good, not that it feels good, but, but it, does, it does strip away our allegiances more and more, and it helps us to hope in you. So God, I pray that you would do that. I pray if there's anybody that's suffering right now, that's even being persecuted right now, Lord, that you would be near to them through your word and give them hope. And God, if there's anyone that hasn't believed in you, do what you did in Thessalonica. Open up their eyes. Help them to turn from idols to worship you. And to have that, that hope, that surprising hope that rejoices in suffering because you have overcome everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us respond. Almighty fortress is our God. Our bulwark never failing. Our helper be amid the flood. Of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And on with cool hay. On earth is not his equal. 
If we in our own strength confide Our striving would be losing We're not the right man on our side The man of God's own choosing Yes, he is You ask who that may be Christ Jesus, it is He, the Lord of hosts, His name, from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. Hallelujah. 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 And though this world with devils fell Should threaten to undo us Do you believe it, church? We will not fear for God hath will His truth to triumph through And though And though this world with devils Threaten to undo That's it. That's our hope. That no matter what happens, God's kingdom is forever. And so that gives us so much confidence in this life that's hard. So I don't know, I don't know who you are, who's watching, maybe somebody in this room. You can have hope. You can have a fortress. More than that, you can have everlasting life through the forgiveness of your sins in Jesus Christ. Just, just turn, turn to worship God from your idols.
Let the rest of that stuff go. And if you have questions about that, what it means to put your faith really in Jesus, if even as we've talked about the evidences of faith, if you're saying, I don't think I see it there, we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to help you with that. We'd love to pray for you in that. Or if, if somebody here, brother or sister watching, if you're suffering and you, and you need somebody to be like Paul to just pray with you and encourage you, we want to do that. Okay, so you can contact us on our website, dscabq.com. Email us, info at dscabq.com. If I could, I'd just put my cell phone number up and you can call me, okay? I, I, we we want to be with you in this. We are because we have somewhere to turn. And we turn to him once more as you're dismissed. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.